I'm Hakima Payne, and 59 years ago, my life started in diapers. Hi, I'm Jill. And I'm Ashley. And this is Poverty Pitfalls and the Price of Diapers. And uh, today, I'm pretty excited about our guest. Hakima um, is the founder of Uzazi Village. She's uh, made a pretty big name for herself, I think, in Kansas City. And it's um, it's a it's an interesting conversation, a fun conversation. Um, she mm -hmm. has a lot to say, and I think we have we all have a lot to learn from her. So I'm excited. But before we dig into that, Ashley, how are you? It's snow day number two. <laughs> right, right. So, well, technically it's um, President's Weekend, but yes, when we're recording this, it's snow day yeah. number two. Let's talk about that. Snow day number two. I'm getting flashbacks of when we were doing virtual school, except at that time oh, I was gosh. not a working mom. I was a stay-at-home mom and it still stressed me out. <laughs> now I'm a working mom and I was doing math yesterday, like fractions multiplying and then making them in their simple form. And I just wanted to scream cry <laughs> cry yeah it's not something I want to be doing I even yeah through the whole pandemic and even yesterday and today on these snow days I am so 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 thankful and grateful that my daughter is 15 because I don't know how you parents are doing it with kids who are not you know pretty self-sufficient and I, I it is got to be the most exhausting challenging experience but what do you do you have to kind of one foot in front of the other yeah you just have to have grace for yourself um if you have to put them in front of a tv for a couple hours you got to put them in TV front of a tv for a couple yep. hours it's <laughs> just you do. i mean it's unfortunate but it's just where we are you have to do what you can do to stay sane and get through it take deep breaths self-care and grace <laughs> I've been uh, following the matrescents on social media. We had them on, you know, Yes. And, and that's kind of a little helpful because they're really, they're just living it out in front of all of us. Like the, the, the hard times, the craziness, the madness. And I'm like, okay, they're doing it with all of those little babies. Yes. I can handle a 15 year old. <laughs> right. Yeah. They are, they're in the, the really rough patch where the kids are they at are. that age where they need all your attention. So just, they are they're cognizant enough though i think to know that they have to make you know yes they have yeah. to show grace for themselves definitely which is good um so i know that our listeners can't see but who's your friend chewy uh chewy. tunneled his way into my closet oh so that he can like, say hi she's like this is not where you work and i lay next to you on the sofa come on i know he's come like i know you're spot. in there so he just kind of nudged the door <laughs> till it opened what kind of dog is chewy he's a cavapoo oh cavalier spaniel a, poodle mix so cute he um, is cute yeah i'm recording today upstairs in the spare bedroom since my daughter is home and the dogs are down there and i just knew it would be chaotic so i was like okay Same. i'm gonna lock myself up here um <clears throat> Okay, well, uh, uh, oh, you know what else we have to talk about, which it'll be like two episodes out, but have you recovered from the Chief's loss? Um, yeah, I just kind of unplugged from 
Twitter, which I follow a lot of Chiefs people on Twitter, so I unplugged from that. Okay. I didn't even watch the NFC game that night. I didn't watch it at all. So I feel like by the time the Super Bowl comes back around, I'll be ready to at least eat some good food and good. have a few drinks and watch good. football without right. yeah, feeling too bad. And so I feel like I haven't seen much about this, but I'm guessing that they're now focusing on like last year, was it last year or two years ago? Two, maybe it was two years ago. I don't know how old their baby is last year when like the game ended and, and Brittany was like, okay, now we can focus on having this baby. And I was waiting for the, okay, now we can focus on this wedding. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Why aren't they married <laughs> yet? waiting for the, for that post. Like, okay, season's over. Now I am can... sure it will be a grand affair that requires a lot of planning. So yes, I'm, yeah, I'm sure there, that there's been a lot of planning throughout the season by people, yeah. but it'll be, we need that. Kansas see. City needs that. I mean, right? we need a lot of royal, people don't our like our royal her, wedding. <laughs> we do. Yeah. And then they can get in a carriage and just go on the streets of Kansas City and wave to us like a parade. Okay. We'll just yes. stand out there with their mouths open. Yeah. It was interesting, though. I did see somebody posted about um, how they were so disappointed at all the hate that Brittany's giving. They're like, you think, what did they say? You think Mahomes is going to go to win a Super Bowl when you're giving his family or Super Bowl when you when you're giving his family so much hate? stop the no. hater he's gonna leave and I was like that's an interesting like yeah why you know people just want to hate they need somebody to hate on I guess and she's a high profile person um yeah. who's living her best life so she, she puts that, a lot out there there's a lot of NFL quarterback wives who just kind of like hang in the right. background because they don't want to create a distraction for their spouse but she's not going with that approach no I don't have any hate towards her I think she's fun yeah I don't either, except that we never got a thank you card, but I'll let it go <laughs> <laughs> for those cute shoes, which she yes. had on again at the game last week. Really? Yeah. Every game the baby's had on those cute shoes. Um, yeah. It's fine. Uh, okay. Well, hopefully the world has survived. I guess the Super Bowl is probably aired by now too, right? Uh, yeah. Be. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll we'll know who won. Congrats to whatever team. <laughs> it better be Cincinnati. Honestly, I'm kind of rooting for Cincinnati at this point. So uh, yeah, I don't, honestly don't have an opinion. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we hope that you all enjoy this episode with Hakima. Welcome, Hakima. We're so excited to talk to you. And especially, I think you are something that our community has needed for a long time. And I'm excited to learn more about you because I, I imagine <laughs> that a lot of people have known about you for a long time and I'm just catching up to the, to the party. <laughs> um, so welcome. Welcome. And um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your early life, um, you know, how you got into the work that you're doing, whatever you feel like sharing? Uh, I'd love to. So I was born right here in Kansas City. So I've lived my entire 59 years here. Um, and I have the privilege of having my entire family here. My parents are still oh. living and, and they're both here. Um, That's amazing. Uh, uh, my living siblings are here, uh, my children, but also uncles, aunts, cousins, they are all right here. So, so uh, I have an enormous family. <laughs> my mother comes from a family of 
nine children, my dad from a family of 13 children. And so all, all of those siblings that are living, still living, are here. And of course, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. So many, many generations out uh, of a very large family. Uh, and I love that. It, it gives me a security and a sense of rootedness. Um, I have lots of beefs with Kansas City, but uh, I, there's no denying that this is home and this is where family is. So, so that's true too. So I feel very much a sense of rootedness. I'm an earth sign and it shows. I like to stay put. Um, and uh, and just spread my branches where I am. Uh, but I, I grew up in a housing project, T.B. Watkins, uh, just east of downtown, mm -hmm. and uh, was a loner even as a small child. I was, uh, as I was going over your list of questions, I was thinking, how in the apartment building I lived in, if you went out the back door, there was a community center and a playground and just a common area. It's where everybody gathered, where the whole community gathered. But my building was situated as such that if I went out the front door of my building, it was just a quiet, grassy area and nobody <laughs> went back there. Everybody was on the social side. And so I can remember as a very young child, always going out the front door <laughs> uh, to the quiet grassy area, sitting in the grass, you know, picking clover and making little crowns for my head Aww. out of the flowers. And, and that's how I would while away the hours. So I was always a quiet, introverted, loner child, and very much that way as an adult, too. You so you really need my alone time. Mm, I can relate. So were you kind of a contemplative or philosophical, <laughs> you know, philosophical <laughs> child Always. with all that alone time? Always. Yeah. And I made up stories. So I'm a storyteller. Uh, I come from a family of storytellers, so I can't help myself. But uh, just make up story after story after story in my head. Oh, and wow. as I got older and learned to write, I would start writing my stories down. So I've, I've been a journaler really probably from the age of 10 and wow. write stories, write poetry, but yes, very much a contemplative person. Amazing. Have you, have you published any of that? Does that ever cross your mind? <laughs> uh, it crosses <laughs> my mind all the time. I'm actually working on a poetry chapbook now. Very cool. Uh, that that I uh, will call our souls the same age. Oh, wow. I happen to have the first poem. I, I decided on the first poem for the chat book. Um, and I'll read it to you. <gasps> yes, uh, please, please. I just happen to have it right here sitting on my desk because I've been working on the chat book. Oh. Um, and I'll tell you the title last. Okay. But it goes, Mama and I go shopping. And this will give you an idea of my childhood, too, since we're talking about my childhood. Mm -hmm. Mama and I go shopping and run into her best friend, Miss Charlene. All of my mother's friends are getting old now, some even dying. 
I feel ashamed that I haven't seen her in so long. She and my mother complained back and forth, Miss Charlene about her uncultivated and ungrateful brood, Mama about her craggy and obstinate mother. I go to give Miss Charlene a hug and am surprised to feel an overwhelming urge to fall into her gigantic bosom. I want to make her sit down right there in the condiment aisle so I can crawl into her substantial lap and lay my head against her elephantine breasts. She'll stroke my head and tell me what a good, good girl I am. I hold the hug too long, not wanting to part with the fantasy of being mothered like a child. You are so sweet, baby, she croons to me as my reward, then turns back to my mother to continue volleying, volleying the common grievances that make up the most satisfying part of their friendship. I know what I'm doing, storing up hugs like a greedy child to fortify myself for the time when all I'll have left of my many mothers are those strange memories of resting on their bosoms. Mm. Oh. That's beautiful. I love that. So uh, I grew up surrounded by, <laughs> aside from my mother's girlfriends, uh, <laughs> a lot of whom aren't around anymore. Uh, I also grew up around my cousins, and and they were really my social outlet. I loved being in the company of my cousins and and uh, starting now, of course, to lose some of them now, but but they absolutely made up the most satisfying part of my childhood, the time I spent with my cousins, hands down. <laughs> wow. The contest. Sounds like you had an amazing community of people. <laughs> I, I, I did. I I really, and of course, I grew up. I grew up in a time of severe segregation. Now, I do think Kansas City is still, to this day, one of the most segregated cities in America. Agreed. Uh, but I grew up during a time of segregation. I was born into General Hospital Number Two, which was the colored hospital. Um, so. You know, I'm old enough to have been born into a segregated facility. You know, I just recall so much of my socialization was spent with my cousins, with me hardly having an awareness uh, of those kinds of distinctions. I know one of your questions asked about, you know, when did you know you were poor? Uh, I didn't know it. <laughs> mm. uh, we absolutely were poor in a housing project, but uh, but I didn't have an awareness of that. My life was filled with family, which is, you know, another kind of riches, um, another kind of asset mm -hmm. uh, that to this day I appreciate. <laughs> One of my favorite stories to tell is uh, that once, you know, I was in my 30s, had several young children, and I was uh, in my car driving across town to my mother-in-law's. Uh, we lived in the city and my in-laws uh, lived north of the river in Gladstone. And so I was driving across town to drop my kids off to my mother-in-law's for the day. And my car started smoking and I pulled off the highway uh, into a, a gas station parking lot to see why my car was smoking. and. A car pulls in beside me, uh, 
and it's one of my cousins. <laughs> and he says, I saw your car smoking on the highway, so I pulled off to see what was wrong. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> this gosh. This is an absolutely true story. And, uh, and so he looks at my car, tinkles with it, and says, you know, and I decide I'm going to go back home. I'm going to risk mm -hmm. the rest of the trip with the kids in the car. And he said, I'll, I'll follow you home, make sure you get home. So I get back in the car, uh, get back on the highway, and drive back home to my house. And, and my cousin just sort of honks and keeps on going as I pull into the driveway. And um, that's how many relatives I have. That, wow. You know, I like to say I can't swing a dead cat without hitting one. <laughs> um, so, so just, yeah, just my life. It brings such security because now I know people who have none of that, you know, mm -hmm. only children or their parents are only children or their families are spread all over the map. Or, and I and my existence, you know, is very different from their experience. But I I think about what I gleaned from that. And it, there is very much a sense of security. You know, I'm never really alone. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm loved, you know, and I feel that. I know that I'm cared for uh, by family. And, I, of course, I have my chosen family. Now I have friends who are very important to me, but my, uh, my family of origin uh, mm -hmm. is very much uh, a big part of my life. Talked well, we kind of briefly got to this next question, the when and how did you learn about poverty um, but I want to go a little bit deeper, even, you know, you talked about Kansas City and segregation and what, what are your, you know, how did you get involved in the work that you got involved in? Um, and what are the issues we need to be aware of in Kansas mm -hmm. City that, that we're not right. Educate. <laughs> how, how can we educate? <laughs> our well, I, I can say a lot about that, but I, uh, I'm a birth worker. I love birth. I'm passionate about birth and lactation. Um, it's been my thing my entire life. And I think I first got into it uh, because I had my first baby when I was 15. Mm. Uh, so my oldest son is 44. Mm. Uh, and uh, he actually runs one of my businesses. Oh, wow. So, um <laughs> And we're very close. Uh, but I uh, had him when I was 15. Uh, uh, of course, there's a lot of crisis uh, around uh, teen pregnancy, but the physical experience of it, I immediately fell in love with. I love being pregnant. I love giving birth. I love everything about it and around it. And I just... From that moment, I was enthralled with the entire process. I was always an avid reader. If I wasn't daydreaming and making up stories, I was reading a book. I was <laughs> sitting in my room reading a book. Uh, so I've always been a bibliophile, and I approach pregnancy no different. Even when I was 15, I just went to the library and, and pulled every book off the shelf I could find that was related to childbirth because I wanted to know more and more and more and more. And this was, the year was 1978. And so a lot of the books that were on the library shelf were about home birth. And that totally planted a seed in me. You 
know, I knew I was 15 and I'd be given birth at the county hospital and, and that would be that. But I thought someday I'm going to have a birth like wow. the one that I'm reading about in these books. It won't be today, <laughs> but someday. <laughs> and, and that's what happened when I had, I have nine children. Uh, but when I had baby number four, I had my first, first home birth. And so that first pregnancy captured me, but it was that fourth birth that really brought me into this work. I had mm. been uh, going to art school and I actually, you know, changed majors and uh, enrolled in nursing school after I had that first home birth with baby number four because I thought I this is what I want to spend the rest of my life doing is, wow. is helping people have birth experiences like the one I just had uh, because my home birth changed everything. It just it changed the entire trajectory of my life. So after baby number four, quit art school, went to nursing school uh, and thought I would become a midwife but I actually went on to get my master's and now I'm working on my PhD in nursing. Um, I'll move more towards research and, um, and uh, creation. <laughs> Very much still that creative person. Uh, now what I primarily do is create, create models of care um, for black birthing people. Uh, so that's sort of where the Poverty and racism tie in uh, because so many are aware, so many of your listeners might be aware that, you know, there's great uh, disparities in outcomes for African-American mothers and babies. And I went on a journey to explore why that is and what can be done about it. What I discovered is that the why is, is plain old racism. I know folks will be tempted to say that black women don't take care of themselves or that it's related to poverty. And it's actually none of those things. It actually is plain old everyday systemic racism embedded in healthcare and how healthcare expresses itself uh, to the black body. And, uh, and the reason there are so many health inequities uh, for black bodies, uh, in every arena of healthcare mm -hmm. uh, is because black bodies are treated differently and not in a good way. When you get to the arena of maternal and infant health, you see sicker babies, babies that don't survive, sicker pregnancies. Uh, and so my work is to create systems of care that recognize, celebrate, and nurture uh, Black ways of being and Black culture. Uh, so I create Afrocentric models of care. I have and so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lots well, of people do. My work okay. gets a lot of attention because, you know, very few people do this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's important work. So first, I want to go back. What was so... Um, I mean, I'm assuming you had a community, a small community around you for that home birth. What was yeah. so life-changing for you about that home birth? 
So the midwifery model of care is vastly different from the medical model of care. It's more personable, it's more individualistic, it's more hands-on, it's more based on relationship and not just uh, clinical knowledge. Um, and so that whole approach to care, I was just enthralled by midwives, mm -hmm. really, and their whole approach to care, which is vastly different, uh, where you might get a, you know, a five to seven minute visit uh, when you see your obstetrician for prenatal care in the clinic, um, a midwife home visit for that same prenatal visit might last 90 minutes. And that's where the relationship is really built. And that, you know, that's the crux of the service. It's built on relationship. Um, and where you might, you know, get a sense that your obstetrician is nice. I hear that a lot. Uh, you don't really build a relationship with that individual because mm -hmm. there's just too little time invested and the focus is more clinical where the midwife if she's if she's serving you for a home birth she really does need to know more <laughs> about your life than just your obstetrical history right um, so um so yeah i like that that the the clinical relationship is built on a personal relationship uh, and then, of course, this, the environment of home birth, you know, you have your home birth at home. It's your environment. And the way you behave in your space is, is completely different. And the way you feel and the way you, in the space, in a space that's yours is very different than in a clinical space uh, in which you're the guest. In a home birth, everybody else is the guest. Right. It's a very different dynamic. Uh, it's a beautiful dynamic that lends itself really well to giving birth. Uh, so you're in the ultimate comfortable space, having a very uh, personal experience, childbirth. Uh, and the folks that are there are just there for you. Your nurse isn't, you know, you don't have a nurse who's divided between you and another patient down the hall. Mm -hmm. uh, and the midwife is just there to tend to you. It's not a doctor who's also, you know, got to watch out for whoever else of their patients might come in or whoever else might be laboring down the hall. Uh, it's a very different dynamic and it's, it's an amazing experience. It's hard to really compare to hospital birth. And most people mm -hmm. who have a home birth would never consider going back to hospital birth definitely one of those. I went mm -hmm. on to have six home births. Wow. Uh, so That's six amazing. of my nine children were born at home. Uh, so then you talk a little bit about, and I don't know the statistics, but I'm, I'm thinking you probably do. Um, I do know that more black women die in childbirth in hospitals. Is that, am I misspeaking mm -hmm. or there are more issues? Well, there's, uh, they have like a three to five percent chance higher risk. Okay. So dying in childbirth is still rare. I always mm -hmm. hasten to say that. That's okay. not a common thing in the U.S. Uh, but when it does happen, it's more likely to happen to Black women and other women of color. Mm -hmm. uh, and that too is tied to the racism, not being listened to, not being heard, or you're, you're saying, you know, I've been having these headaches and saying, oh, that's just normal. Uh, whereas when a white woman might make those same complaints. She might actually get a, you know, a lab workup or, you know, it might be investigated deeper. Uh, 
but that not being listened to or complaints not being taken seriously, it it sounds really innocuous, but it's not. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> there can be really deep and serious issues that are basically ignored until they become too serious to manage. So that that's often the story uh, and people, you know, aren't aware that that's how mm -hmm. it plays out, but it's how black bodies are perceived um, in general in American society, you know, that we're, that we are lazy or we are non-productive or we're not ambitious or we don't perceive pain or whatever those stereotypes are, uh, they very much play out in the American psyche and this is how it manifests in healthcare. So it really is racism. It really is that the black body is not seen as the same, that, you know, the standard, the norm is the white body uh, and the black body is other. And those other bodies are just seen differently, treated differently and are absorbed into the system of healthcare differently. And I know that this has been in the news a little bit over the past few years, especially as it relates to healthcare. Are you, are you, what's being done about it? Is anything being done about it? Or are we just starting to talk about it? <laughs> I think, what you know, can I've, be been, about it? I've been having this conversation for 30 years. You know, first I was experiencing it as a birthing woman myself, because my six home births really taught me a lot. And of course, then I went to college <laughs> again and again and again um, to stack up these degrees uh, to become an expert in this. But first there was my lived experience. And, and I would say there is common conversation or there is public discourse on this now, but that's new. That is very, very new. Uh, and I would say I'm glad the conversation is happening, but I, there are some concerning things within that conversation that, that Black women still aren't really being listened to. Um, uh, uh, lots of you know, educated folks are putting forth their theories, but you, you really need to just go to the source. And I don't see a lot of that happening. Uh, I think I'm part of the solution. <laughs> I like to think that, that uh, mm -hmm. that's why I've set myself to creating alternative systems of care. It's why I promote home birth for Black uh family, birthing families, you know, I actually promote homeschooling. I think the best thing black people can do is take their kids <laughs> out of the school system where they're just being indoctrinated into subservience and oppression. Uh, but, um, uh, and I should say, I don't think the school system is that great for white kids either, but it's really <laughs> bad for, for black kids uh, because black kids just aren't seen as achievers and then they're treating accordingly. So it's the same. It's absolutely the same as in healthcare. Black bodies are not seen the same um, and are treated accordingly um, in the negative. So, uh, so while I'm glad there's a lot of discussion, uh, I don't, I don't know that that they're always the right discussions. I think America's not ready to own its legacy of racism, uh, and so we aren't having the honest conversations we should be having. Uh, I think we, I hope we're headed in that direction, but it's not happening right now. 
uh, I see a lot of what I would call, um, you know, sort of nibbling at the edges of the problem. I see a lot of organizations that want to create, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion committees, uh, which I think is mostly bullshit. That's not the real work. Uh, the real work is really changing systems, changing the culture of your organizations to uh, to become more equitable, being uh, viewing the work that your organization does through an equitable lens uh, with the guidance of, of uh, individuals who are really experiencing the inequities. And I hardly see anybody doing that work. So, so my people team are is, having the conversation, but they aren't mm -hmm. doing the work. My team is teaching me a lot about that equity and I've, I've learned so much and I'm grateful to them for that. And I'm going to be real vulnerable. Um, hopefully I won't cut this out when I edit, <laughs> but you know, I, it is interesting because, because I've been giving this a lot of thought just personally, right. I, I know that I have a lot of room to grow and to change. And I certainly was raised in an environment, um, where differences were pointed out more than similarities. So I do see that difference in the color of skin. And I hate that. Recognize that that there is culture and history there, but I, I think I recognize the difference. It's maybe not in a good way, again, because that's the environment that I came from and it's not right. an environment well, we, that I agree are. with, right? <laughs> we all came from that environment. We're all right. socialized into racism. That's why uh, what I try to get across to folks is racism is the default. Yes. That you don't have to consciously say, oh, that's a black person. I don't like them. You don't have to consciously do that. Just mm -hmm. your seeing me is the yes. trigger to for your brain to do. So how do you break out of that? That is hard work. That is hard <laughs> and that's work the work I'm trying to do. But I feel the, like there's, right. yeah, there's not a lot of people saying, how do you, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I talk about that a lot because I, I'm on that journey. I mean, I'm on a journey, you know, 50s is a the decade of liberation, really. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> you don't really start to live till you hit your 50s. <laughs> Two more years. And trying to reset my brain so that I don't give in to the misogyny that I've uh, only <laughs> known <laughs> for my mm -hmm. whole life and the uh, and the racial inferiority that I've only known my whole life living in this environment and uh, you know trying to root out the patriarchy the capitalism the the homophobia all of that is all embedded in my brain because that's all that American culture taught me uh, right. normalize those things. So I'm on the same journey. I'm not just looking at you as a white person and say, you got to get your shit together and figure <laughs> this out. I'm actually have to do the same thing myself mm -hmm. uh, because I too am enculturated to believe that I'm inferior because mm -hmm. I'm black. That's all mm -hmm. that American culture taught me. And it taught you the same thing. So we both essentially have the same work to do, uh, and that's to capture each thought <laughs> and challenge it 
and say, why am I thinking this way about Mm -hmm. this situation? Um, I don't want to think that way. Here's how I want to think instead. And I'm telling you, that's a moment by moment discipline. That's incredible work, but that's the work we have to do on a personal level. Uh, mm-hmm. On an organizational level, our work is similar to that. It has to do with setting policy and procedure uh, in a way uh, that's equitable. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it's still that same kind of gut level work just on an organizational level. I love is that. that. Some, is that something that you're doing? I know you said your creative processes now are more geared towards creating these systems and policies are you working on an infrastructure for organizational change all the time so right now so uh, i started a nonprofit, profit village uh, i think that's why you're interviewing me and <laughs> one of the things we do at Uzazi village is we create models of care afrocentric models of care so right now i uh, i have an experimental prenatal clinic uh It took me years to put this into place, Uh, but I created a model, you know, from those stories in my head. I created, wrote down on paper, uh, basically asking myself if I could create a maternity care system in which uh, Black people were treated well, (laughs) what would that look like? Uh, And I wrote it all down on paper, painstakingly over the years, you know, had a clinic built and raised the money to run the clinic hire the people, train the people, and here we are, blah, 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 blah. all that work's done. The clinic exists, and, and I'm, you know, we run a, a prenatal clinic one day a week right now. When we get enough clients, we'll expand to two days a week. Uh, it's called the Ida May Clinic, and it's named after my grandmother. And, mm-hmm. uh, and basically, we run a clinic like Black people would run a clinic, <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> And then, uh, because I'm a scientist, uh, we measure the outcomes. We measure what we're doing. So we're very introspective, my team and I. You know, we uh, we were just, you know, we have a clinic meeting once a month uh, uh, to look, you know, to step back and take an overall view of what's happening in our clinic. And our ladies, we haven't solved all the problems. So, like, all the clinic staff is black, except the midwives, because I haven't been able to find a black midwife to hire. They're just rare as hen's teeth, but now I have to do a national search. So except for our white midwives, everyone else in our clinic is black, uh, because I want to, you know, measure the impact of of black people caring for black people, that sort of thing. Uh, But some problems we haven't fixed, like um, clients coming back for their postpartum visits. You know, women notoriously don't come back for their six-week checkup. So we, we actually have two, four, and six-week checkups in our clinic. Wow. Uh, and we we have uh, their, their clinic visits are more often two weeks, not once a month in the beginning. So, uh, so we're, you know, we're trying to uh, deal with very specific issues, but we haven't solved the problem of people not coming back for their postpartum visits. And so, so we had to take a deeper dive. Okay, why aren't they, why aren't we seeing them in the postpartum like we did in the prenatal? 
Uh, and so those are the kinds of issues we, as a team, we sit around the table, we address, we talk about the ins and outs, we tweak things, we try to come up with solutions, we institute home visits on the postpartum end instead so they don't have to come into the clinic. Uh, and then we measure the impact of that. So so we're, we're really taking a deep nosedive into just what the specific issues are and, and try and be creative with, with the problem solving. It's just an active, open experiment, human experiment in how Black people experience healthcare. Is anybody else doing this work that you know of? This is amazing. <laughs> I'm, uh, there's probably not a whole lot of people around the country who've opened their own clinic. <laughs> yeah. It's not something people usually think about doing. You know, usually they would think they would go to an existing clinic and say, hey, would you try to implement these changes and let's mm -hmm. measure them and see how they work. I couldn't get anybody to do that, of course, because what I'm doing is a little bit more radical. I can't go right. to the hospital and say, hey, can you fire all the white people and hire the black <laughs> people in their places and then let's see how this works. Right. So, so clearly <laughs> I had to do it on my own. But uh, but I don't know a lot, but that doesn't mean there isn't somebody out there doing this. There are, I would say there are birth workers, there are midwives around the country, black midwives who are intentionally building black practices. And a natural consequence of that is that most of their staff are black as well. And they're serving black people in their communities. So uh, I think that it's happening in other places around the country. Uh, uh, I may maybe being a little bit more scientific or intentional about it. Mm -hmm. Do you, once you kind of figure out all of mm -hmm. the, you know, you work through all the problem solving and you finally have a model that's like, this is it. Is there a plan to publish <laughs> like a scientific paper and put it out there to try to get national attention or? Yes. Uh, and, and interestingly, I get a lot of attention, even though I haven't done any of that yet. I, and I keep telling people, guys, I don't have any data for you yet. Wait, <laughs> hold on. I just started this. Uh, but the whole idea from the inception was to scale and replicate. So, yes, we create models uh, of Afrocentric care. Um, we pilot them, we study them, and then, you know, if they're found worthy, then we scale and replicate, meaning, yes, I want itemate clinics all over the country if, if it's a model that works. Uh, and we do have one model that is uh, scaling and replicating, and that's our Chocolate Milk Cafe. Chocolate Milk Cafe is it's like La Leche League, if you heard of La Leche League, it's like La Leche League for Black people. Chocolate Milk Cafe. It's uh -huh. a... It's a uh, a peer-to-peer -peer breastfeeding support group model. And right now we have chocolate milk cafes. We have, I think, 13 uh, affiliates in eight states and one Canadian province. So wow. they're, so they're growing uh, uh, a lot. And chocolate milk cafe came out of Uzazi village, but now it's its own 501c3. Mm. We have a group of ladies in New Jersey run the National Chocolate Milk Cafe, that that's what I want to see happen with my models. I want them to see them grow, replicate, and scale if the world finds them useful. Mm. 
That's amazing. Been having these thoughts and internal struggles with, as you know, these funders, most funders, Kansas City, anywhere, they want a lot of data, right? Um, and we are trying to be more equitable, more inclusive. Our data at Happy Bottoms shows throughout the years, the percentage of families we serve pretty much stay the same um, in race. I have learned a lot from you about making services more easy to access, right? Cutting down on that paperwork. I mean, I've, I've known for years that like the paperwork and, and the requirements are just ridiculous, right? That, that we ask the hoops that we ask people to jump through in order to get things that they need to, um, to survive in some cases. And so what can we do? And, and that's something I have felt like I want to stop even asking the race question. Now, I do think it's important to ask race, well, because if you don't ask race, then you don't know who you're reaching and serving. Uh, and it, I think it's important to know. I think a lot of a lot of organizations don't ask the race question because they're trying to get out of knowing. I think that's gotcha. their way of not knowing. So I do think it's important to ask race because you need to know who you're serving and who you're not serving. Well, okay. That's good to know. Cause I, I, like I said, we have always asked for race. I think because it has been consistent every year and the majority of the families we serve are black families, Hispanic families. Um, then, you know, at some point when that data doesn't change, do you stop asking? But then I guess you don't know if it will change. So right. Then you then you won't yeah. know. And the reason you're seeing more black and Latino families is a mm -hmm. feature of American right. culture, which keeps those uh, those groups of people, you know, subordinate in our, you know, economic mm -hmm. ladder. And that's, you know, they're experiencing more that, need because of how the country was yeah, right, created. Right there and how it's maintained. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, those communities are bearing a greater load of the, uh, of the economic burden uh, of poverty. And, and so they're the ones who are in need of your services. So that's mm -hmm. why the whole country has to shift the, the whole the whole egg is rotten. <laughs> We're rotten from the inside out. <laughs> uh, we have a system that assures that white people will come out on top and everyone else will be subordinate to that, even though, yes, I know there are poor white people. The question was uh, about how we how, well, really how just... we gather data and, mm -hmm. and that, that barrier-free service is mm -hmm. really a cornerstone value. Of, of how we do things at Uzazi Village. Because in the beginning, we had people come to us all the time, you know, what papers do you need? What do you need to know to get your services? It's like your name, <laughs> your zip code. Right. Uh, we're big on collecting zip code based information, but, but that was it, name and zip code. And no, we don't need to see a birth certificate or whatever. Uh, our philosophy is if you show up for the service, you get the service, period. <laughs> And, same, uh, <laughs> same. If you need uh, diapers, I'm going to give you diapers. I don't <laughs> really care who you are. So it's uh, so that's you know that's been it for the inception from the inception of our organization because I was a 15 year old mother <laughs> and mm -hmm. on many of those services I I know experientially how dehumanizing how those systems are really designed to dehumanize and 
and make you feel bad about yourself. And, uh, and I, I'm not interested in perpetuating any of that. Uh, you know, we want to, if anything, imbue a sense of empowerment and, uh, and that people have control and, and that just because folks are experiencing some uh, financial difficulties does not, you know, relieve them of their humanity mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and they deserve, you know, to be treated with dignity and respect. And, and that's what we're trying to relay. And, and one of the ways that you can disrespect and dehumanize someone is, you know, demand all their intimate data. Have you done the poverty simulation experience? <laughs> I don't you... believe I have. I've okay. done the real experience of poverty. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have this poverty simulation so that people can go through and experience what it is like. And I was curious if you had... Um, I have not done it. I would like to do it for my entire staff. Um, and I just not having done it, I don't know, but I just feel like it's, it's a shame that we can't do something like that for the whole community all the time. So that I, it's my understanding that when people go through it, they want to quit halfway mm -hmm. through because it's so frustrating and it is so annoying. And, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, but this is a game for you. This is right. real life for <laughs> so many people. <laughs> well, uh, a lot of people don't understand how expensive it is to be poor, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it, in so many ways, that's really, really true. And, and just that there's all these systemic barriers that, mm -hmm. uh, that just keep you entrenched uh, in that, you know, economic position. So I think of a lot of our mothers who, you know, maybe they're they're up for a raise on their job, but they can't take the raise because then they'll they'll lose other benefits that are even more critical, and so they're essentially trapped. You know, they they can't move up the ladder. Mm -hmm. You know, in their job positions, uh, because there won't be enough of a raise to offset what they're going to lose and other benefits. Um, if they if they receive it so so those are ways in which you know our our system traps yep the benefits cliff we have to have julie carmichael on here i don't know if you know her hakima but she does a great presentation about i'll i will introduce you via email because she really has a wonderful presentation about what you're just talking about um she calls it the benefits cliff and she's got a lot of data that backs it up and it's some great information that you might. Yeah, we see seeing. we see it in real life, and it's and it's um, yeah, it's really devastating when when folks are trying to use their own resources to work their way into a better situation, and the system and just won't allow it. Just it happened at Happy Bottoms happen. with one of my employees, <clears throat> and it was devastating devastating. And it, you know, makes me want to pay every single one of my employees a living wage, which as a nonprofit, I'm sure, you know, is hard. Uh, <laughs> I will say this is one of the things I'm really proud of. We do do that. Wow. Uh, our, our least paid employee mm. makes about $10 above the minimum wage. Mm. We don't play around about mm. that. We're serious about personifying our models and and being, if we're saying, well, you know, your organization should do this and that, we have to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, a huge uh, portion of our budget is 
in salaries and wages because we do pay well above mm-hmm. the living mm-hmm. wage or well above the, the minimum. Mm. Well, yeah. And that we, I mean, Happy Bottoms definitely pays above the minimum, but we're not at that. I think the living wage in Kansas city is like 65 or $70,000 a person. And there's just, I mean, that would, that would be hard for us to do. Um, not that I don't strive to do it every single day. <laughs> it, um, it's, it's a really a catch 22, which, which mm-hmm. makes me look at even the nonprofit system and think this isn't an equitable system. This isn't a, a yep. good way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, so again, we need <laughs> yes. better systems. We need Absolutely. Better systems. So um, we're, I mean, I think you've, I can tell a lot how you're a leader in all the work that you do in your science background, but you know, you tell me how you think you're a leader and if there was a defining <laughs> point that led to that. I, I hope I'm the type of leader that gets in there and toils right alongside. I feel really strongly that I have to have done it first, <laughs> that mm-hmm. I have to have worked it out. I have to walk in those shoes before I can ask someone else to walk in it. And building an organization from the ground up, I literally have worn every hat. So every position I've done it first uh, so I know the lived experience of carrying out that position. Mm-hmm. We're getting so big now that they that may not necessarily be true, continue to be true in the future. Uh, but but to this point, it, it is true. I've worn every hat. Uh, we're a small operation, so many of our team members wear many hats mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, of People come to work for us because they are mission-driven, as we are. Uh, we consider ourselves revolutionaries. We're, we're on the front lines of the battle to really change things. We're not pissing around, you know, nibbling at the edges, which is what I see so many doing. We're really attacking the core of what we think the issues are that lead to health inequities. We're really serious about finding solutions. Um, I know I've been observing just locally here, uh, I would say one of our biggest issues we have in Kansas City right now is housing and and uh, gentrification. Ooh, that That's a topic right there. Gentrification has made more changes to my community in the past 10 years than I saw in the previous 50 years of living here. Um, and not for the good. It, mm-hmm. It's all been bad. Gentrification is 100% bad. <laughs> there, it, yep. is, it is not good in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and watching our city's uh, uh, government approach to housing, you know, their lack of commitment to a solid housing policy, their solutions, which are uh, light and transitory and not really, <laughs> they don't really dig in and, you know, attack the problem in a robust way that really presents solutions. Uh, that's been a real lesson for me in how not to, to carry forth when you really want to find solutions. Uh, and uh, I think people join our team because we're really serious. We really want to find answers. 
and we'll use all the creativity. We'll find the resources because we're not claiming to re be rich, but but I also can get people to to donate to the cause if we need to need something done. You know, this mm -hmm. the clinic was built uh, and may and is maintained, you know, completely on donated funds. Mm -hmm. um, so so I do have my sources. Uh, but if folks want to be a part of that work, really finding solutions and not, you know, just coming up with clever platitudes or silly, simplified solutions that don't really solve anything, then they, you know, then, then people are drawn to us. They're drawn to the work. Uh, I work hard. Maybe I'm a little bit of a workaholic. I'm trying to find <laughs> some work-life balance there. Uh, but my work is my life, especially now that I'm an empty nester and just went through a divorce and uh, my mm. kids, I have a 15 year old, my youngest is 15, uh, but he lives with his dad. So I, so I am an empty nester. And, and this is, this is what I want to give my, my time and my talents to. So we're mm. very devoted to these issues. We're serious about uh, finding solutions, but I think I'm the kind of leader is going to get in and work alongside my... I did mean to ask, when did you open Uzazi Village? Uh, we started in 2012. Okay, 2012. Coming up on our 10-year anniversary. Oh, that's incredible. Um, so, you know, when I started Happy Bottoms, it was 2009, and it, and it really, you know, I had a daughter, and I just could really, who was in diapers, and I could really relate to that need and to hearing the stories that moms were facing, especially, you know, in my um, privileged life where I was able to stay at home. That's what I wanted to do. And hearing stories about moms, you know, getting on the bus with their three kids to go to the corner store to buy diapers that were marked up and, you know, yep. higher price it, than they, yep. than, than I could go to Costco and buy at the box store. Right. Um so, you know, that's where it started. But I really, you know, the more I have gotten into this work and done this work, I mean, I know that diapers have still remain the number one requested item at social service agencies, and, and it is a huge need. Um, but part of what I question is how can Happy Bottoms, you know, ultimately, I really do want to put myself out of business. I don't want to do this forever. I want to figure out how families can, can have diapers when they need diapers, you know, we are starting to get into um, some policy work and we're working with um, other diaper banks in the state of Missouri to try and affect change. But for me, I get a little overwhelmed because it's so, as we're talking about, it's so much deeper than that. It's so much bigger than that. Right. right. And it's like, I ask myself the same question because, yeah, I like, put myself <laughs> out of a job, too. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of nonprofit leaders will say the same thing, but it's mm -hmm. all tied to the economic and capitalistic structures of American society that keep certain groups impoverished or, mm -hmm. uh, or that make it harder for them to get out of poverty. And, and so you can't fix the need for diapers. <laughs> Right. That's Without fixing, fixing all of that. <laughs> right. Yes. So yes. it's like that. That's that is the crux of the issue. So so how do we make a more truly democratic egalitarian society for ourselves? How do we how do we create a society in which people will actually have what they need, mm -hmm. uh, irregardless of, of what group they belong to? Yeah. Uh, so, 
Yeah, it's it's really complicated. It's really complicated, and we have to keep digging deeper as an organization, but also as individuals uh, to be better organizations and to be better people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have mm-hmm. to free ourselves of the kind of thinking that, you know, well, this group, we're doing all the work and this group's reaping all the benefits. You know, we have to deal with ourselves on that kind of thinking. Uh, There's just a lot of work to be done because everything is attached to everything. Mm. Yeah. And and the the need or uh, the need for diapers, you know, is tied very much to the need for good health care, <laughs> which is tied mm. to the need for good education, which is tied to the need for Absolutely. Uh, public safety and security, which is tied to the need for good policing, which is tied to the need for safe and secure housing, which is tied, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. Okay, good. So I'm not losing my mind. It really, it, that's why it does seem overwhelming at times. It's just yeah, like. I, I go, I spin around in that same <laughs> circle in my head uh huh. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, because I'm making I, this little dent here, but there's so much right, work to because, be done. Right. Because I see I can't solve it. We were just talking about it in our clinic meeting. It's like, you know, we can't solve the social milieu that, that our clients exist in outside of our clinic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's a whole lot of issues. And, you know, we were naively thinking, you know, our clinic structure would solve some of this and some of it it will and some of it it won't because mm-hmm. it's a much bigger issue. Mm-hmm. Why do you think some of us end up in a pile of it and some of us get out clean? <laughs> <laughs> I think each of us has, you know, that was your question that that had me thinking longest and hardest because it's not just individual merit. I think mm-hmm. each of us has a story to tell with our lives and and some folks have one journey and some folks have another. Uh, I, you know, in my family of origin, between my, my mom, my dad, uh, my two sisters that I grew up with, I'm the only one who graduated high school. And now I'll go on to get a PhD, but I came from a family in which no one else graduated high school. Um, and I, I think about that a lot. Why is my story my story? And I can't credit it to me. (laughs) Uh, I just, you know, I also don't want to say, oh, it was my destiny, because I don't think it's that simple either. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think this is my journey. This is my story to tell. Mm -hmm. I think you can credit, you know, you you obviously had some fire or something in you, you know, that that desire maybe in in this you know for you know i think formal education the way it's presented sort of suited my personality type or whatever so mm-hmm. that helped uh but my sisters had their merits in other ways that aren't as easily recognizable or that mm-hmm. aren't as valued by the society that we live in you know i i think both my sisters were much more successful in parenting than I was, even though I'm the one who had all the scads of kids. <laughs> uh, you know, I think they were more successful in their their parenting uh, in that focus, and you know, so so it's you know, it's just different. 
Mm-hmm. Just different, but I, I don't see myself as better than them or even that much different than them. Uh, we just had different journeys. Mm, yeah. I was um, was reading something yesterday about kind of speaking along those same lines about how we need to normalize other options outside of college, even, you know, trade schools or family rearing, just making those, those things are just as important as going to college in a lot, in a lot of ways. Right. And yeah, a lot of that has to do with what we value when really, you know, I'm, I'm good at taking tests. Tests don't stress me out. I love to read. So, so I can read all the assignments and, uh, working things out with pencil and paper because I'm a writer, it suits me. Uh, so, you know, the, a system that really doesn't work well for a lot of people just happens to work well for me mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the way I'm built. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, I don't, it's just kind of a fluke. That's just kind of the way it is. But, but yeah, I, I don't know that I, that I entirely have an answer for that, Jill. I just think everyone has their, their journey um, and that we live in a society that's set up to uh, tolerate a lot of human wastage. Um, I, I know many of my uh, cousins, you know, had incredible talents uh, in ways that, that weren't really capitalized on or that weren't valued by uh, racist, paternalistic, you know, homophobic, sexist society that we live in. Uh, and that, that allows for a lot of human, uh, a lot of wastage of human potential. Um, and so we don't live in a society that really capitalizes uh, on the genius that may exist in someone who's black and gay or trans and simply because of the color of their skin, you know, they're thrown away, not given all the same advantage, not given all the same opportunity. Uh, so, you know, in some ways, the universe uh, decided that I would slip through, but I don't mm-hmm. entirely know or understand why, but it just is. Just happened. So what do you most value? Ooh, I most value change, transition, you know, that, that place that where the intersection of learning and growing, saying goodbye to one way of thinking and hello to another, uh, I think which has marked my fifties, you know, I'm at the end of my fifties now headed into my sixties, which I think will be my real Nirvana. And, um, I just, I love how I'm transitioning and growing. I even love how painful it is at times. I'm just going to say that's a messy (laughs) place to be loving. (laughs) It it is. It is. And yet I know what's waiting for me on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. So I want to get through it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is messy. It's painful. It's agonizing. It's horrible to come face to face, (laughs) see your own Mm -hmm. face in a mirror and say, ah, how I've internalized uh, my own misogyny. I'm a gay woman. And so uh, my own transphobia, my own, you know, colorism, my own uh, anti-blackness, 
you know, mm -hmm. I've had to come face to face with all of that, deal with it, uh, and rewrite those scripts in my head. Uh, mm -hmm. But that that is absolutely what I value because that will get me to uh, moving toward the person that I know I can and should be. Mm. I love that. I, um, I've long thought that everybody, we just need to start children in therapy. All kids just need to start <laughs> therapy at a young, young, young age. And maybe that would solve all of the world's problems if we had the right therapists in place. Uh, maybe if adults <laughs> do their therapy before they have uh, kids. Yes. Yeah. That too. <laughs> that too. That too. But, but yeah, I, I love where I'm at. It's incredibly difficult but it's also incredibly beautiful and so I really value and treasure that uh, that I'm still learning still growing and still uh, working toward being the best Takima I can be awesome well I thank you so much for chatting with us today this was a wonderful conversation and um love the work that you're doing at Uzazi Village. So everybody please check out Uzazi Village. Well, um, I'll give a couple of plugs. Our yes, website please. is uzazivillage.org, O-R-G, that's U-Z-A-Z-I, village.org. And uh, also follow me on my Facebook page. I write extensively. <laughs> now I do my journaling in the public view on Facebook. Awesome. Uh, but if you go to Hakima the Dreamer, Hakima Tafuzi, uh, you'll find my uh, personal page where I pontificate a lot on a lot of these issues. Great. Um, if we're not following you, we will be now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, well, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And um, Congrats and good luck on finishing that PhD. That is not an easy feat. I know <laughs> Whew, you're busy with that. So um, yeah. And I can't wait to continue to follow Zazi village and you and, and see what changes you make. So thanks for all the work that you do here in Kansas city. Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, appreciate you too. And thanks for this invite. What a fascinating person. Life. I hope she <laughs> writes a book. I didn't, I mean, I know she's got the poetry book coming out, which is amazing, but it, I bet that she would have an amazing life book. Oh my gosh. As well. Yeah. She's got so many interesting things to talk about. And even the way she talks, you can tell she's a writer. Like she, yes. you just feel like you, it should be what she's saying. She should just be putting on paper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the fact that she has lived the work and the changes she's trying to bring about, I just, it, that carries so much weight, I feel like. And I, you know, it's just great to learn from her and her experiences because they are very, um, they're not unique experiences. I mean, they're unique to her, but um, it just really does make you think about race in this country and how we think about it. And I'm so glad I asked her that question about, you know, my, like I have thoughts that I don't want or feelings that I don't want to have necessarily like, how do I, how do I change that? Well, it's comforting that she doesn't necessarily have the answer either. I mean, she's still working through that herself. So mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. It's just an ongoing conversation that all of us have to have, and we're not going to all have it at the same pace or maybe right. even end up in the same place, but. Right. Yeah. It's like um, walking down a, a street in New York. Would I be scared if there were two black men following me versus two white men? And, you know, I'm a woman, so probably I should maybe. Both. <laughs> I should be on alert no matter what. Right. But yeah. I do feel like I'd probably be on higher alert if they were black versus white. And so it's that type of, you know, thing that how do you how do you adjust that change or in the moment think about it okay am I on high alert because of the color of their skin or because they are men well um I hope you guys enjoyed Hakima and learned a lot and definitely check out Uzazi Village they are a relatively new uh collaborator with Happy Bottoms and they are distributing diapers um to the clients that they serve and their facility is um beautiful and got a lot of amazing things going on over there so their website's great too yeah all right we'll see you guys next time thanks for listening